Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. In our very first episode, The Chalice and the Blade by Rianne Eisler, we mentioned that one feature of prehistoric partnership cultures was that there didn't seem to be a huge gap between rich and poor. The dwellings were pretty much the same size and people weren't buried with huge stashes of wealth and riches like later dominator cultures were. That stuck in my mind as something I wanted to investigate further, but I didn't have a text or really know how to look into that. And then as I've prepared for future episodes, I've read a lot of 20th century texts about how patriarchy interlocks with other oppressive systems. So patriarchy interlocks with white supremacy, for example, which I understand. Um, But I'm also reading a lot about how patriarchy intersects and interlocks with capitalism. And I've never studied economics in depth. And so I haven't really felt equipped to analyze that intersection. And so I've been on the lookout kind of for a text that would help me understand how economics intersects with patriarchy and more specifically, the partnership model versus the dominator model in economics and how that impacts societies and individuals. So I was absolutely thrilled when I connected with Dr. Julie Hanks on Instagram. And she told me that Rianne Eisler had actually written another book about that very topic. It's called The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics. And Dr. Hanks actually wrote her PhD dissertation on Eisler's partnership and dominator models. And so she recommended that book to me and accepted my invitation to come talk about it on the podcast. So I am just over the moon, thrilled to have Dr. Julie Hanks here as my reading partner today. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for the invitation, Amy. I I love talking about Rian Eisler's work, and I think it's so uh, life-changing and gives us language that we haven't had to talk about this dominator partnership continuum. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I'm so, so excited that you're here. Okay. Well, let's dive in. We're going to set up the text first by introducing the author. I'll just um, give a brief biography of Rianne Eisler. She was um, born July 22nd, 1931. And I'm going to share a quote that she wrote about her upbringing in chapter five of The Real Wealth of Nations. So Dr. Eisler writes, quote, I was born in Europe at a time of massive regression to a rigid domination system, the rise to power of the Nazis, first in Germany and then in my native Austria. I was too small to understand what happened, but when the Nazis took over Austria, my life radically changed. Fear became our constant companion. On November 10th, 1938, the infamous Kristallnacht, so named because of all the glass shattered in Jewish homes, shops, and synagogues, a gang of Nazis came to our home and dragged my father away. By a miracle, my mother obtained his release and we fled Vienna. Had we not, we would have been killed in the Holocaust, as was the fate of six million European Jews, including my grandparents and most of my aunts, uncles, and cousins, as I found out to my horror after World War II ended. These early life experiences profoundly affected me. They led to my lifelong quest to understand how such a thing could happen and what we can do so it never happens again. End quote. 
Rian Eisler's family fled from the Nazis uh, and they found um, asylum in Cuba and then they later immigrated to the United States. And she ended up obtaining degrees in sociology and law from UCLA and she later taught pioneering classes on women and the law um, at UCLA as well. She's best known for her concept of the partnership versus the dominator model, which she elucidated in her groundbreaking work, The Chalice and the Blade, which was published in 1987. And that book was praised by the famous anthropologist Ashley Montague as, quote, the most important book since Darwin's Origin of Species. Um, But this book, The Real Wealth of Nations, was published in 2007. And um, some praise that this book received upon its publication, um, it was hailed by Archbishop Desmond Tutu as, quote, a template for the better world we have been so urgently seeking. And Gloria Steinem called the book revolutionary. So pretty amazing um, reviews from some amazing people for this book as well. And actually, I know, Julie, you've gotten to know Dr. Eisler personally, right? Through through your work. What's she like? Yes, she's delightful and unfortunately getting older and you know I don't know how long she'll be with us but I've had the chance to uh, to study with her in some of her online classes um, she wrote the uh, the foreword for my book the assertiveness guide for women mm-hmm. which is one of the highlights of my life um, amazing because she's just her work has influenced me so much but she's generous and uh, delightful and brilliant. Everything you would would hope she is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how lovely. What an honor. And that I think it's so beautiful. And, and as much as I'm hearing in your voice, as much as she means to you, I'm sure that for her too, to look at you as kind of the heir who will continue on her work and her legacy. And you are spreading this, this concept of the partnership model to so many people who might not have discovered her work. So I'm sure that you mean just as much to her as she means to you. Thank you. There are a lot of people who are continuing her work in different areas and it's, Mm -hmm. it's, um, I'm really passionate about it, obviously. And, yeah. and my focus has been working on developing partnership in family life. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, let's get into the book. This is so exciting. I want to start things off with three foundational ideas. Um, first of all, I, you know me, I love words and their <laughs> definitions and their roots and the etymology I do of too. words. It, it really enriches our understanding, don't you think? Mm-hmm. To know. Oh, I agree. Yeah. So I thought one really interesting thing that Dr. Eisler uh, brings up is the the word economics itself. So Dr. Eisler points out that, um, and this is a quote from her, quote, economics comes from oikonomia, which is Greek for managing the household. And then she points out a core component of households is caring and caregiving. She says, Quote, consider that without caring and caregiving, none of us would be here. There would be no households, no workforce, no economy, nothing. Yet most current economic discussions don't even mention caring and caregiving. 
end quote. So that's a foundational argument in her whole book that kind of undergirds her argument in the throughout the book that the unpaid invisible labor of the home that has typically been done by women all over the world is not even accounted for in economic models. And that's a big problem. And I thought that was so interesting that the very word economy comes from oikonomia or like home life, the household. So like the <laughs> irony of that is was really striking to me. And then the second concept to understand as we go into the book is, again, Eisler's kind of core model that she developed that she talked about in The Chalice and the Blade, which is the partnership model as contrasted with the dominator model. Um, and so actually, Julie, I'd love it if you could summarize that model. Um, and you can talk about, you know, the chalice and the blade, too, if there's something that we missed in our first episode or how you advocate for the partnership model in your practice. Just get us acquainted with the partnership model and kind of its implications, if you would. Yeah. So the dominator and partnership uh it's on a continuum. So very few societies are all dominator or all partnership. Um, dominator societies are structured by hierarchies of domination. So it's a hierarchical structure uh, maintained through fear and force. So, uh, so that's on one end of the continuum. There's an in-group and an out-group caring and quote unquote soft uh, values are are not um, valued. Men are in charge, men are privileged above women and and yeah caregiving is not is not valued. Um, economically, the policies are are designed to feed the people at the top to keep the people, the rich rich and you know keep the poor down. Um, and then on the other side of the continuum is the partnership model, which is organized by linking and connecting instead of ranking. So ranking is the dominator, linking and connection is the partnership structure. And what's interesting is it's also, um, it's more democratic, but there are hierarchies, which a lot of people are surprised, but Eisler calls them hierarchies of actualization as opposed to hierarchies of domination. So hierarchies of actualization mean the people who are in leadership have the responsibility to actualize everyone in the group. And actualization is just to reach your highest human potential. Uh, men and women are, are leaders in partnership societies. Uh, men and women are traditionally held masculine and feminine values are all valued in, in partnership societies. And there's a high engagement and, and value on caring for human beings and caring for the earth. And so economic policies and practices in this system support uh, everyone's basic survival needs and help actualize the, the whole group. Mm. Awesome. Okay, so so one thing that that jumps out to me as you're talking about um, the hierarchies, mm -hmm. even within a partnership model, that there are still hierarchies, and that um, when she says when she says that there are still hierarchies because you know that helps to get things done, it's like more efficient if you have a leader. Of course, mm -hmm. she's talking about the the kinds of the 
hierarchies or leadership that are earned through expertise or won through the democratic process, right? Where like the authority derives from the consent of the governed and that everybody has access to those leadership positions, right? It's not the kind of hierarchy where the only people eligible to lead the group are a certain privileged race or a certain privileged gender, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, I just wanted to point that out because I I mean, I hear sometimes like the I can hear the people, uh, like the men in my life who might say, well, that is how patriarchy works. Like I'm a benevolent patriarch. And so I do help you to self-actualize. I am like providing you with opportunities and I would never like exercise unrighteous dominion. But in the, in a patriarchy, women don't have access to be those benevolent leaders. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, so am I, I, I'm, am I right in understanding that like in a true partnership model that that Dr. Eisler would advocate for, that anybody who wanted to and was qualified to be a leader would have access to leadership, to be yes. a, that benevolent leader, right? Yes. And, and the leaders would represent the, uh, the population, right? It yeah. wouldn't be just a select yeah. few. Um, it's and it's also a lot flatter of an organization where where the dominator society is a very high like I think of it mm-hmm. as a ladder yeah. where um, partnership is flat but there still is some hierarchy in it mm-hmm. um, just and and a distinction that she makes that is really powerful is in in uh, partnership societies the leaders have power too yes. And in uh, Dominator, it's power over. Mm-hmm. And that distinction can be really, you know, those small words make a big difference. Huge difference. That's something that's come up so much in conversations with men for me lately who are like very dear men, very dear friends of mine who are like, wait a second, if you're telling me that you want to break down patriarchy, then like, what even is my role in my family or what even is my role in my life? And, and I, but I just, I think that's so useful. It's so useful to think like, no, you still have power to do whatever you want, except mm-hmm. have power over me. <laughs> like, right. just like, I won't, I, I don't claim power over you. I'm just going to be right over here reaching my own potential and you can be right over there reaching your potential and let's work together and let's lift each other up. So I, I love that. That's such a useful um, distinction to make power to versus power over. Um, okay. That's such a great um, setup of, of kind of understanding partnership and dominator. So as we go into the book and then one really quickly, one last um, thing that I just kind of caveat right as we get out of the gate, I kind of expected this book when um, when I looked at the title, The Real Wealth of Nations, and it was going to be a more caring economics, I kind of expected it to be anti-capitalism. I thought it would be very socialist leaning and communist. And I was still, you know, I had an open mind to that. I was just interested in what she was going to say about it. But it wasn't. It, it was so much bigger than any particular um, <laughs> political ideology, right? Like she's mm-hmm. way... That's what's so beautiful about it. Yes, I thought so too. I thought so too. She she actually points out that Marx, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, who wrote the Communist Manifesto, um, that they kind of were blind to the plight of women, honestly. Like they said a couple of things about women, but they were primarily concerned with 
quote unquote, the worker, which at the time totally meant men. It didn't mean women. So they weren't, they just kind of ignored women. Mm -hmm. As an aside, they were also quite racist. (laughs) Um, And so, and she points out too, that the, the, the economic systems based on communist ideology that came later, you know, after Marx was already gone, he never saw what happened in Russia or China or Cuba or whatever, but, you know, all of his ideas have led to dominator governments. And so she's, she, what she's proposing is not like a communist model instead of a capitalist model. She's proposing something altogether new that transcends those labels. Am I understanding that right, Julie? Yes. And what's so interesting is, is we think that capitalism or socialism and communism are the only two options. Right. And she presents a third option that that is so different. We're so conditioned to think of people in terms of ranking who's over, who has power over who Mm -hmm. and who's, you know, in charge and can enforce things. And, and her partnership model and her caring economy model, it's, it's a totally different way of thinking about human interaction. Mm. And that's what's, what is so powerful about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really outside the box. You have to kind of like undo a bunch of assumptions, right, that we bring to these discussions. Okay, um, well, let's get into the book a little bit. Why don't you start us off, Julie, and we can kind of take turns. What was one of the main concepts for you in this book? So uh, one of the main concepts is that our economic models only take into account exchange of money, things that are bought and sold, and entirely leaves out human capital and natural resources. Mm. And so it values masculine and doesn't even acknowledge what is traditionally considered feminine work. And so it's divided by male is productive, female is reproductive, and we don't count. Like we literally don't count the work of women in our economic models. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even a factor in the GDP. Volunteer work, home caregiving, and natural resources are not counted, and so they don't count in our in our minds. And so that's a, a big take home from this this book and Eisler's work. Can I read a section um, yeah, from page fifty eight and fifty nine? Yep. Ultimately, the real wealth of nations lies in the quality of its human and natural capital. I should add here that an investment in human capital is an investment in human beings. It is the enhancement of the quality of life of human beings, of human happiness and fulfillment, not just of the ability to earn income in the market. This is fundamental to the holistic concept of caring economics. I should also add that by natural capital, I don't just mean the the nation's natural resources, but also our planet's ecological health, since without this, we risk losing everything, including our lives. This, too, is fundamental to caring economics. Financial profits should not be the the be-all, end-all of business and economic policy. The welfare of people and the health of the planet must be overriding goals of sound business and economic policies. That's powerful. Yeah, and and we don't we we just assume that 
how things are set up is is kind of the right way or the only way. Mm-hmm. And I love how she lays out like, no, we need to consider these other factors uh, in our economic uh, indicators and in in what we value and what we count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I There's a, a passage that we shared from Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own where Wolf is looking at a newspaper. She's like in a, a little cafe and she just reading that day's news in London. She said, she says something like, I'm par- paraphrasing, but she says, any, if an alien came to earth and read any newspaper, it would become immediately obvious that England is run by a patriarchy. And I love, <laughs> that's like such a useful thought experiment that I do actually all the time where I, I either present, pretend that I'm like observing other primates and like, hmm, what are they doing? Why is that guy hogging all the bananas? Why is that like, (laughs) like watching somebody else or being an alien and going to a different planet? And you realize like we could have established any number of different systems. And we just, it just so happened that this is the one that evolved, but it could have, I mean, an alien coming here would be like, whoa, (laughs) all the females are at home and they don't get any of the, (laughs) like any recognition and they don't get all the men are taking all the, are telling them what to do and taking all the stuff. Anyway. Um, so that quote that you just shared, um, where she's, it says, quote, financial profits should not be the be-all, end-all of business and economic policy. The welfare of people and the health of the planet must be overriding goals of sound business and economic policies. That reminds me of Kate Rayworth's TED Talk. I don't know if you've seen it. It's I haven't. Called, oh, my goodness. It's so, so interesting. Um, it's called Her TED Talk title is called a healthy economy should be designed to thrive, not grow. And mm. she developed this um, this new idea in the field of economics. Kate Rayworth is a, um, a professor at Oxford and Cambridge. She's an, an economist. And she, she developed this idea of what she calls donut economics because the model that she developed is like in the shape of a circle with mm. two lines. So it looks like a donut. But um, I... She talks about that exact concept that that you just um, talked about, Julie. So that's really, for listeners, that's really worth watching. Um, and then more on Kate Rayworth, actually, my friend Susanna Furr, who, who just was my reading partner for A Room of One's Own, was telling me about an article in the periodical called Dumbo Feather. And it features Kate Rayworth, and Rayworth talks about Adam Smith. And so, of course, the title of this book, The Real Wealth of Nations, is a response to Adam Smith's work, The Wealth of Nations. And just as a review, because I think it's important to know what what Eisler is kind of responding to, Adam Smith was a Scottish economist and philosopher in the 18th century, and he published a book called an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, which is just generally referred to as the wealth of nations. And it was published in 1776. And it's one of the world's first descriptions of what builds nations wealth. And it's probably the fundamental work in classical economics. Um, Smith is compared to Sir Isaac Newton and his impact in the field of physics or Darwin in the field of biology. But the thing is that all of those guys, Newton and Darwin and Smith, Although they're geniuses, and although their work made important contributions to our understanding of the world, they have blind spots. And just like we talked about Marx and Engels, like (laughs) every system, 
that we just think, oh, well, that's just the way things are. It, it was at one point new and invented, and these all left out women completely. So I just want to read- And they're all men, right? And they're all men, <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. And it's just, it's like women don't even exist to them. It's so, so interesting. And then, and then they implement these systems that impact everybody mm-hmm. with, with no input from the women. Okay. Well, I know there was one more thing, Julie, here that you had written down. Do you want to share that last quote that you had as our last point? Yeah. It's the importance of stories. Um, And this is from page 193. Many cultural stories worldwide present the domination system as the only human alternative. Fairy tales romanticize the rule of kings and queens over, quote, common people. Classics such as Homer's Iliad and Shakespeare's King's Trilogy romanticize heroic violence. Many religious stories present men's control, even ownership of women, as normal and moral. These stories came out of times that orient, oriented much more closely to a pure domination system along with newer stories that perpetuate these limited beliefs about human nature, they play a major role in how we view our world and how we live in it. But precisely because stories are so important in shaping values, new narratives can help change unhealthy values. Of particular importance are new stories about human nature. We need new narratives that give us a more complete and accurate picture of who we are and who we can be. Stories that show that our our enormous capacities for consciousness, creativity, and caring are integral to human evolution, that these capacities are what make us distinctively human. Hmm. That's beautiful. So can can you think of some stories that do help us embody better values? I think, um, well, part of what I concluded in my uh, dissertation study was a way that I could do that was to support the creative work of women, because mm-hmm. women tend to include partnership themes in their creative work. Mm. And so I have committed to buy art from female artists to um to make an effort to buy books and literature from women, uh, from women of color, and to make a concerted effort to elevate women's stories because they've been left out of the storytelling for so long mm. and they tend to carry more partnership values. So that's one way that I've personally committed to, uh, to find and elevate stories that embody partnership values. Mm, I love that. That's so great. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of one of the eight, I developed eight C's of partnership families, but the last one is mm. creation and collection of partnership stories. Mm. And so I challenge families to create stories, to write stories, to write down their own stories uh, to, that, em, that embody partnership and to actively seek media and books uh, with diverse characters, with caring themes, with, um, you know, violence minimized and used only as a last resort and those kinds of things. So that's, that's something that uh, I've integrated into my model. 
Mm, I absolutely love that. And I feel like it gives me chills to think of girls creating those stories and consuming those stories. And also boys, that if, mm-hmm. if boys are watching and reading caring partnership stories and and then they're writing stories like that so it's really coming from them mm-hmm. and they're putting that out into the world and kind of envisioning it oh i just love that julie what a powerful exercise for families to do together and to participate in the creation of that i just love right, it right oh that's fantastic well is there any like um final takeaway that you want to share or Yes, my favorite quote uh, from Rian Eisler is, when the status and power of women is greater, so also is the nation's general quality of life. When they are lower, so is the quality of life for all. Fantastic. That That's like inspiring and also provable with data, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yes. Yeah. It really is true. Well, thank you so very much for being here. I'm um, just so thrilled that we got to have this conversation and so appreciate you reading this book with me. Thank you, Julie. Thank you so much for inviting me, Amy. Mm-hmm.